Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website, which is www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, you can simply post your question on our wall on Facebook, send us a tweet to at the Organic View, or contact me directly at June Stoyer on Twitter. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, one of the most trusted names in certified organic clean foods. Listeners of the Organic View Radio Show can receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. Simply enter the coupon code ORGVIEW when prompted during checkout. That's ORGVIEW. For more special offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. On today's show, I'm going to talk to Damian Mander, the CEO of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, about the illegal trafficking of wildlife and why there needs to be a global effort to conserve wildlife. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Mr. Damien Mander. Good afternoon, Damien, and welcome to the show. So nice to have you. And, uh, wow, I can't get over the fact that we can conduct these interviews. I'm in New York, you're in Africa, and it looks as though you're right in the same room. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me, June. G'day. Oh, you're very welcome. Damien, you have a fantastic background, and your journey is one that many people will be able to relate to. Well, not all the details, but just your drive and your your um, just your love of animals, I'm sure, will touch so many people. So can you take a few minutes to just share your journey? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I suppose it's not the, the normal path to becoming an animal activist and, and, and wildlife conservationist, but I don't know what is the normal path. As a young fella, I, I, you know, from a 13, 14-year-old, I used to go down to the pier uh, on the ocean every morning. I'd go diving before school just with my wetsuit and my mask and fins and collect all the fishing lures and sell them back to the fishermen. And I did this for a few years. And by the time I was 18, I'd done all the dive courses, which I'd paid for myself and bought all this fantastic diving equipment and wanted to join the Navy as a diver. Uh, it seemed like naturally the next biggest adventure I could probably get my hands on. And uh, so I did that. And, and by the time I was 19, I, was, I joined the Navy. By the time I was 20, I'd graduated as a Navy clearance diver, which is a, it's, it's your version of, of the Navy SEALs. And it was awesome. Uh, I was doing everything I always wanted to do, but now I was doing it with explosives and guns. And so... It, it was it was about as good as life could get, and then uh, September 11th happened, and the Australian government stood up a specialist uh, unit, um, a special operations counterterrorism unit, and uh, entry was open to everyone in the defence force to try out, and went through a series of of tests and selections, and at the end of all these selections, there was a few guys left, and that formed the TAG or the Tactical Assault Group, and they literally turned me into a fish out of water. I went from the dive unit, which I went straight into. I was only there for two days, and they told me, you're going on sniper's course. And, you know, but I don't know anything about running around in the bush. And so there I was, sniper's course, and the Army guys got their hands on me and, and taught me about the bush. And so I did that for a few years and then uh, ended up in Iraq 
working in Iraq as a contractor, actually, uh, working alongside the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Marines in various roles. One of those roles was training the Iraqi police and the Iraqi special police how to take charge of all the chaos that was going on around them. And uh, then in 2008, left it all behind, went to South America, got drunk, uh, stayed drunk for about a year and tried to figure out what to do with life. And I suppose it's a similar situation. A lot of people coming out of that environment, being on a knife's edge for so long, and then it all just stops and you're like, you don't know what next, what next, where, where do I go? And uh, you start, if you're not being productive or you're not being out there, it's very easy to get down quite quickly. And I ended up in Africa uh, not long thereafter. And I wanted to go out and, and run around the bush for six months with an AK-47 and do some anti-poaching. Something cool, get some more pictures for Facebook and uh, something else that everyone would say, hey, this guy's doing some really cool, fun stuff. Again, it was about me and, and nobody or nothing else. And uh, it was hard trying to get into that environment because you're dealing with guys who are there for the right reasons, people who have been involved with conservation or anti-poaching for decades. And then you've got this, this foreigner coming in and, and trying to run around just for fun. Uh, actually, it was in Zimbabwe after travelling through five other countries that I got to start with an anti-poaching unit. And I started to get it. I started to really understand why these guys get up every morning and go out into such a dangerous environment uh, where their life is on the line every day for a minimal wage, uh, for a thankless task that a lot of people don't have acknowledge is going on. And these are the rangers I'm talking about, the guys out there on the front line. And I really, really started to understand what it's all about. And then one day the penny dropped for me and we were walking through the bush and there were vultures circling and as we got closer we could smell death and as I got closer still there was an elephant there uh, it's a whole chest cavity and stomach was missing missing uh, where the hyenas had come in and, and eaten it eaten all the the cavity there that wasn't the bit that that really hit me what was what was really missing was its face and its face had been cut through with an axe and just to take its tusks. So there we have this great big majestic bull elephant uh, in the prime of its life taken down uh, so someone can put an ivory carving on their desk on the other side of the world. And I had the realisation there and then that an animal, an animal doesn't go to school, it doesn't have a job, it doesn't have a paycheck, it doesn't want anything else other than to live. An animal just wants to live its life and we as human beings take that one thing away from them. And it was there and then that I made the decision that I was going to dedicate the rest of my life to protecting wildlife. That is such an amazing story. And the more people that I have connected with, especially in Africa, have also felt that same connection to wildlife and understand that as human beings, we have the gift of reason. And we should make more conscious decisions, but unfortunately, many people are just self-absorbed and concerned about what they have that can put them in their minds to be in a better position or give the illusion that there's something extraordinary. And that's the irony because we are all extraordinary in 
so many different ways. Um, and to slaughter an animal just for one portion of its body is just really disgraceful and, and shameful. So the work that you do is tremendous. Um, can you talk about how you founded the International Anti-Poaching Foundation? What was that like? Well, a little bit daunting at first, actually, because uh, business classes weren't written into the sniper doctrine. And so trying to figure out how to put together all the, all the paperwork that, that goes into the foundations of building a not-for-profit organisation, uh, it, it took a few years to play and catch up. Uh, we initially were just just a guy running around the bush uh, getting the job done. And uh, as you build, you start to realise that you've got solutions that work and you need to find ways to get those solutions into bigger areas, into more countries. And so to do that, you have to have the right structure in place. Uh, so we're now a, a not-for-profit organisation. We're registered in Australia. Uh, we're registered in America as a 501c3. We're registered in South Africa and registered in Zimbabwe. And all those boards allow us to operate in the countries where we work. Now, the IAPF, or the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, is a, is a direct action law enforcement organisation. We don't raise money and, and then give it out to other organisations or, or oversee other projects. We raise money and we go onto the ground, on, at the very front line, and that's where we do our job. We're at the coalface. Uh, we're doing training for rangers, uh, building training programs. We are running anti-poaching operations, managing parks and reserves, uh, working with the local communities and implementing modern technology onto the front lines of conservation, and that's what we're about. We are an organisation that brings uh, a military edge uh, to conservation, uh, for better or worse. This is the world we've created for ourselves to manage, and I don't like it any more than the next person. But the systems and the technology that assist our soldiers in the battlefield coming home safely each day are the same things our rangers need on the front lines here, not only in Africa but around the world. Thank you. Now, can you share with our audience a little bit about the technology that the poachers are now using, which makes it even more difficult to fight them? You got, I mean, poachers, we know poachers are using night vision equipment, they're using military tactics, they're using automatic weapons, they're using highly restricted veterinary drugs like M99, which will be, you can shoot a rhino or an elephant and take that animal down without a sound being heard, fired out of an air-compressed gun. We've even got cases of poachers, people involved with the, the wildlife industry here in, in, in southern Africa using helicopters. And there you've got the, the, the common denominator for defence of wildlife, not only here but around the world, is, is a couple of guys wandering around the bush with an old weapon and a, and, a, and a radio and a battery. And they're sent out there into the face of adversity every day to wander around the bush and wait till we bump into something or find a three-day-old footprint or find a carcass. And it's not right. If I can be on the battlefields in Iraq and have a drone buzzing over my head, then why can't our rangers have the same privilege here? These rangers doesn't... I don't care what you're into. If you're into wildlife conservation, if you if you want to be a tourist, if you want to run a tourist lodge, if you want to be a hunter, if you want to be a researcher, if you're someone that just wants to sit down and watch National Geographic or Discovery Channel at the end of a hard day's work, everything comes down to one person or one group of people in this world, and it's one of the most underappreciated underprivileged group of people in the world, and that is the rangers. The rangers, the game rangers on the front line that actually go out there each and every day putting their life on the line defending these animals. And they're not just protecting the lines on a map. 
these guys are looking after the heart and lungs of the planet. Thank you. Damien, can you talk about some of your current campaigns that you really need a lot of awareness for? I mean, you do so much work, but some of these campaigns, I don't even think many people are even aware that these things are going on. Of course. I'm happy to talk about our campaigns. Uh, one of the, the less exciting campaigns, uh, before we move on to the exciting stuff, is is we've just had approved, it took us two and a half years to get two new qualifications approved, anti-poaching ranger and anti-poaching manager. Now these are a paramilitary focused qualification for rangers that give them all the skills that they need to go out there on the front line. The existing qualification here in South Africa is made up of 127 credits. Four of those credits focus on the paramilitary training. Now, if in any other environment you had an armed group of people crossing an international border and taking out a person or a high-target building, it would be an international act of terrorism and it would be on the front pages of the newspapers around the world. However, it happens multiple times every day all across Africa to take out high-target species like elephant and rhinoceros, and we don't hear anything about it. We just accept it as the way it is. Well, it shouldn't be that way. Rangers should be trained. They should be equipped in a way that allows them to go out and defend these animals. Now, in the conservation industry, coming off the back of World War II and the bush wars over here, everybody just had the right training and the right skills to be able to go out there and defend animals. We didn't have to have a, make a big song and dance about the requirements for paramilitary training. The guys were just there and they were doing it. But what you have now is a generation of people in the industry who haven't had, for better or worse, exposure to that type of experience. And so, therefore... We're now finding a breakdown in the abilities of rangers on the front line to be able to go up against these armed incursions from international groups using military tactics and technology. So this qualification aims to provide a career path for rangers that deals with the actual skills they need. And the international community is the one that really needs to take responsibility for this because it's the international community that has often denied the real requirements of what is needed on the front line in terms of ranger training. And there's been this sliding shot front of what people want to be associated with in regards to this type of training. Some people don't want to know that rangers need to carry guns. Sometimes rangers shoot and sometimes rangers are shot. But it's the truth. You can accept it or deny it. The next projects we have, uh, we, we spend a lot of time protecting rhinos. Why do we protect rhinos? Because they're the hardest animal to protect. If we can look after a rhino, we know that everything else in that ecosystem is going to be safe from poachers. At one of our camps in Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, uh, we have not lost one animal there. Not just a rhino, but we haven't lost one animal there in three years. We've never lost a rhino. The nearest rhino population to us has been decimated in the last few years from 76 down to a handful. That's less than 100 kilometres from our base. The last guys that came into our reserve trying to take our rhino are currently serving a 37-and-a-half-year jail sentence. What we're doing now up in another section of Zimbabwe is we're taking, uh, we've been asked to go up there and set up an anti-poaching unit, but also grab, there's a, a, a loose affiliation of organisations up there also running anti-poaching operations. And they've asked us to take all those efforts and form a group and look after an entire region of Zimbabwe. So that's what we're focusing on at the moment, getting that stood up. The other operation uh, is on the eastern side of Kruger National Park. In, Zimb uh, in Mozambique. Now, there's been 850 rhinos killed already this year in southern Africa, uh, uh, sorry, just in South Africa. 
Now, 550 of those have been in Kruger National Park, and there's a lot of efforts happening on the South Africa side, but there hasn't been a great deal happening in the Mozambique side. And we've gone in there, and we're now doing the training and assisting with the operations in there and trying to stop all the poachers that are coming across from the Mozambique side into Kruger National Park, taking a rhino and getting back out of the country. And just in the last, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, we've arrested a handful of guys in there, three guys last week, one with a 458 rifle, it's a heavy caliber weapon used for hunting, uh, $10,000 in cash, and also our vehicle's been confiscated, and those three guys are still in jail. So that's just a snapshot of a couple of the things that we're doing and where our focus is. Thank you. Damien, are there any international laws that prohibit the the hunting of wildlife, especially with the endangered species? Uh, there are international laws, of course. Uh, so the, the act of poaching, well, in itself is, is an, an illegal taking of, of a natural resource. And that's what, that's what poaching is, whether it's subsistence poaching, someone poaching to put food on the table, or commercial-based poaching. So that's someone poaching to take a horn or a tusk or a skin. And that's our main focus is, is, is getting and stopping the commercial poaching because subsistence poaching requires education uh, and dealing with the communities and, and upliftment projects, whereas commercial poaching, uh, poaching requires direct action. What are some of the reasons why the poachers kill these animals? It's, it's, it's like uh, someone robbing a bank or selling drugs. It's a quick way to make a lot of money. Which countries primarily import these, uh, the tusks, the skins, so on and so forth, primarily? Uh, America is one of the largest ivory consumers in the world. Uh, but at the top, you've got uh, countries in, in Asia and Southeast Asia, China, Vietnam, Malaysia, Hong Kong. Uh, these are all big consumers of wildlife products. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, there's a lot of campaigns trying to educate them against using these these types of things but you know it's almost like trying to change someone's dna makeup we don't have time to be changing dna makeup the the, the war to be won is on the ground what can our audience do whether they're located in the united states and europe africa australia how can they get involved with your organization look they can email me at damien at iapf d-a-m-i-e-n at India Alpha Papa Foxtrot dot org and uh, we can chat that way. Or they can have a look on our website and, and see what we're doing. Uh, there's a couple of shows we've done with 60 Minutes. There's an article there from National Geographic. I've done uh, radio interviews on Voice of America. We've just done uh, a show with Discovery Channel. We've done a documentary with Animal Planet. Uh, there's a lot of things that the guys, guys and girls who are getting onto our website can have a look and, and not only understand what we're about, where we're coming from, but start to understand the situation. When you understand and have a grasp of the situation, you can understand about how people can make uh, educated decisions about where they want to be involved. Damien, we have a lot of teachers that tune into the show. Do you have any advice for our teachers as far as educating children? My, my, my one thing that I, I think is my greatest achievement in life, and that is realizing that, that all animals suffer and all animals deserve compassion, and it's not just wildlife. And it took me a couple of years after getting involved with the protection of wildlife to realise that a cow suffers as much as a rhino suffers, 
and and uh, and that's when I, I stopped eating meat and eventually stopped taking dairy. And it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but we we can't deny the feelings uh, that an animal goes goes through. We've all had pets or other animals in our life, and we know we know what those animals feel, and we tend to push things to the side uh, to allow. Um, the convenience of our, our habits to override. Uh, yes, we all we all like a good barbecue and and, and sit down to our roast dinner. But what's been the actual cost of that meal going on the table? Who suffered? And it's not just the suffering, the ethical side of of of, uh, of putting that food on the table. It's the environmental side. And I often have these uh, you know these good arguments with people in the conservation industry. And it's the same argument I have with myself. I'd like to go out and run around all day protecting a handful of rhino, then come down and, and, and sit down at the dinner table that night and eat another another animal. And when I started doing research into what I was eating, I realised that uh, deforestation, ocean pollution and global warming are driving us into this next great mass extinction and that the meat industry is the greatest negative factor in all of this phenomenon. Uh, so many of the crops grown around the world are grown to feed livestock. Uh, so much of the water used uh, is used to, to grow these crops, washing all the pesticides into our rivers, into our seas. All the deforestation is obviously leading to, to global warming or contributing to it. And uh, meat isn't, isn't a necessity. It, it's, it's a desire and it's, it's something that we enjoy. It's not something we need. I'm 112 kilos and I'm a strong man just like a gorilla, and I don't eat any meat, and I don't take any dairy. So the most common question I get asked, where do you get your protein? I get my protein from vegetables. Thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the level of consciousness is is rising, and I think as more and more people understand that when it comes to other beings we are truly all connected and when you wipe out entire species it's not just about the elimination of that species but the role that that species plays in the ecosystem and as more and more species become extinct the toll will be on our own ability to exist so the work that you're doing is so incredibly important especially now where we really need to understand that the environment has a direct impact on our own existence. Damien, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It has been amazing just talking to you and learning about your organization. And once again, if you could just share your website with our audience, that would be great. Thank you. It's www.iapf.org. Or you can just Google anti-poaching, and I think we feature somewhere there on one of the front pages. But seriously, thank you very much for what you do, June. And I know you take a lot of it. A lot of grief uh, for you putting your neck out on the chopping block. But uh, without people like you, we, we wouldn't be making forward progress. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Damien. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Thank you.